Harrison Street started in September of 2005, and at that point in time, they were really thinking about doing something in the real estate industry. They didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. They didn't want to invest in office buildings and traditional multifamily. They decided instead to pick sectors like senior housing, medical office, self-storage, student housing, things that we would term alternative real assets. And they felt that no matter what was going to happen with the economy, people were still going to get older, people were still going to send their kids to school, people were still going to get sick, and people were going to have too much stuff. And so that actually did prove out very well. So this was just something different that nobody else at the time was doing. So it really kind of created this new way of thinking about it. Hi, I'm Connor Gaughan, and welcome to Consensus in Conversation, a podcast where I speak to America's top business leaders about how they're discovering new ways to align profits and purpose. Today, I'm talking with Jill Brosig, Managing Director, Chief Impact, and ESG Officer at Harrison Street, the investment management firm that pioneered the strategy of funding recession-proof alternative real assets. Back in 2013, the idea of sustainability in investing was just getting started. Harrison Street was one of the early financial institutions to respond to this by launching a sustainability committee. They built upon this specific portfolio framework by hiring physicist and proven problem solver Jill Brosig as the firm's first chief impact officer. Under Jill's leadership, Harrison Street has set new industry standards for transparency and ESG commitment, pledging to reduce carbon emissions by 70% across their entire portfolio and recording publicly accessible data to measure their progress. Thanks so much for being here today. We're so excited to talk to you. I'm very excited to be here. Thank you, Connor. Yeah. So give us a little bit of your background. Uh, where are you from originally? I am originally from the Chicago area. That's where I grew up and have never really left. <laughs> and I need to fact check ourselves at some point, but I'm pretty sure you're our first physicist that we've had on the podcast. <laughs> I'm honored to be the first. How did you decide to pursue that track? I really enjoyed physics when I was in high school. And I think so much has to do with who you're teachers are. They're, yeah. They just influence you so much. And I really love physics. And I felt that if I went into that field, I felt it was the one that I thought was most challenging. But if I could do that, I could do anything. I hear this theme as I've had these conversations the last few months around the importance of just mentorship, good teachers that in your life, surrounding yourself or finding, seeking out those figures. It's so important. Absolutely. So I guess the question is, do the laws of physics affect the laws of business? <laughs> I think going through physics, what it taught me was to think about the why. Why do certain things happen? And it really allows you to identify a problem in that way. I also am educated in the field of engineering. Engineering teaches you the how. And that really does apply in the business sense. And how did you transition from a physics background and early career into the finance world? What was the, the pathway that got you there? Well, I guess I would also maybe add in how there's a connection between the two. Yeah. So interestingly enough, when I started out as an intern, I was working at one of the national labs in the Chicagoland area, Argonne National Labs. And my first day on the job, my boss says to me, I have a particle detector that's leaking four tons of freon into the atmosphere. Go fix it. 
So, you know, being the intern, you just do what you're told. And so I drove to where this particle detector was. It was out at another one of our um, national labs called Fermilab. Now, I don't know what you're picturing when I say a particle detector, because particles are really, really small. I walk into this room. This detector is two stories high, just as wide around, filled with O-rings and gaskets. I have to figure out where the leak is and fix it. So takes a while, got to order parts, have to fix it, do it, go back to the boss. And I say, it's done. And he said, that's great, but I have to apologize. For some reason, I had you confused with the other intern who's a mechanical engineer, and I gave you his job. So again, back to my point about give a physicist anything, they can do it. But then <laughs> I moved into, um, I was working for a firm where we were studying inertial confinement fusion. Fusion is how the sun makes energy. And there's a lot of laboratories, a lot of researchers working on this now. And if you can get to a point where you can harness how the sun makes energy, you would have this perpetual source of energy. It'd be clean, it'd be safe, it'd be yeah. consistent, all of that. We still have a ways to go, but that's kind of another connection as to what I've been doing, what we would term now the ESG space. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting for me is I move from working on projects that are going to have a tremendous impact someday to working on projects that are having an impact today. So my connection to how I got into this field was um, I actually was working for Motorola prior to its um, transition. Phase. Transition, thank you. I was looking for what I was going to do next. And one of the gentlemen who had been the former CEO of Motorola, in fact, his grandfather had started Motorola, a man by the name of Christopher Galvin, had started this company called Harrison Street, which is where I'm at now. And so I actually just went to him for career advice. And when he had heard about everything that I had done at Motorola and all the things I was involved in there, he wanted to bring that culture to Harrison Street. And so I came over in that path and then eventually wound up in this chief impact officer role. It's a completely brand new role for the company. And like I said, I think it's just, it just gives us the power to do things that, um, you know, no one ever even thought of before. It's very pioneering. It's very exciting. And by taking the lens of having the physicist viewpoint of it, that's so different than if I was an asset manager or uh, an accountant or something looking at it that way. I'm looking at things very, very differently. We can talk a little bit more about what exactly that means. Give us a sense of the origin of Harrison Street. Where did it come from? So Harrison Street started in September of 2005, and at that point in time, they were really thinking about doing something in the real estate industry. They didn't want to do what everyone else was doing. They didn't want to invest in office buildings and traditional multifamily. They decided instead to pick sectors like senior housing, medical office, self-storage, student housing, things that we would term alternative real assets. And they felt that no matter what was going to happen with the economy, people were still going to get older, people were still going to send their kids to school, people were still going to get sick, and people were going to have too much stuff. And so that actually did prove out very well. So this was just something different that nobody else at the time was doing. And so it really kind of created this, this new um, way of thinking about it. Yeah, I mean, the word pioneering is, is in Harrison Street's mission statement. Can you speak to the choice of including that specific word? 
I don't mean to imply that everything we do is pioneering, but there are certain things that that I think really stand out. Of course, we're going to be doing some of the same things as others. We're going to be making sure our buildings are as efficient as others and making sure they have LED lighting and low flow water fixtures and those types of things. But one of the things we're doing, which I think is more pioneering and more unique than others, is we have a 2025 goal of reducing our carbon emissions by 70% across our portfolio. Now, our company already is operating at net zero. We've been operating at net zero since 2020, of September of 2020. So we've done that at the company level, but we haven't done it at the asset level yet. And so that's what we're working toward. And then on the social side, as a physicist, I'm not a touchy-feely person. So I need to have, I need to be able to demonstrate that anything we do has an economic and a financial benefit. One of the things we do, one of the programs we run is something called student care. So again, we invest in student housing and senior housing. And these are the two generations that research has said are the loneliest. And we're in a wonderful position because of the vast number of these types of properties that we own of bringing these two together. And so in this student care program, you have students that volunteer or sign up to work shifts in the senior living community. That's awesome. And it creates this wonderful bond. I mean, Connor, we no longer live in a world where it's commonplace for grandparents to live in the same household as their their grandchildren. We're losing that knowledge really both ways. And so to create these types of programs, on that side, it's wonderful. But what's happening from a financial perspective is right now, senior housing has a hard time finding workers. They have to pay a lot, whether it's to recruiters, whether it's to overtime, all those types of things. So to be able to bring in a staff of this younger generation is just such a win-win for everyone. Yeah. What's interesting about the example you just gave is Here's a win-win scenario where you're both promoting your financial gain, you know, you're actively working towards bettering the portfolio's value while also doing something truly remarkable and good for the world. And so I think it's just interesting. People seem to always think that doing good and doing well or at odds is something that we strive very hard to try to disprove every day with the stories we tell. I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I actually believe that buildings that have solid ESG design and operations, they actually perform better. They're more attractive to whomever it is your marketplace is, whether that's a resident, whether that's a tenant. And so we've run some studies already that, that demonstrate that if you have some of these various attributes, that you can do things like you could charge more in rent. That's not the direction we're going, but it shows that there's a value there. People would be willing to pay more. Yeah. We're looking at uh, doing studies now on how does it impact occupancy? Do we have higher occupancy in these buildings that have more what I would call attractive ESG attributes? Tenure, are people staying there longer? Do we get more at time of sale? So these are all the types of things that we want to be able to demonstrate because I don't believe you have to give up returns in order to do this. In fact, if anything, you need to do this to improve upon your returns. And that's what we're here to prove out. Well, one of the interesting, I think, perspectives that comes with investment management and the financial sector in general is the requirement to be a visionary, to look further downfield. And you hear folks like Larry Fink talk about this all the time. Like, we can't be looking at the next 12 months and thinking, this is this is it. This is the, the period by which we need to judge revenue and growth and profitability and cash flow. Like, 
and especially when it comes to real estate, I think it's even more interesting to think about how strong the ESG case is in that particular sector. So what we're seeing from potential buyers, they're saying to us, if you don't have an ESG story, we're not interested. And I think for me personally, I want every single one of our buildings to have an ESG story and they should be talking about it, whether it's solar, whether it's some, you know, various building certifications they have, various social initiatives. This should be on their website. They need to be talking about what they're doing. I do think that that's really going to attract tenants and residents. So... Harrison Street started its formal ESG program in 2013, which is 10 years ago. Wow. Um, (laughs) So now I feel old. But that was very, very early. ESG has become a very important conversation in the financial world and and, in policy world, really for the last four or five years. But this is 10 years prior. Why? Why was that something that was part of the, the Harrison Street position so early when it wasn't yet popular? Yeah, and it wasn't even called ESG then. It it was called sustainability. It was our sustainability program. And frankly, how it started is we had some European investors come to us and ask us what our GRES score was. So GRES stands for the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. And that had started maybe three or four years prior to us getting this question. It was started in the Netherlands. They came up with this program to have this global benchmark where you could look at a portfolio and see how it stacked up against not only an absolute score, but against others in what you would call your peers. And so honestly, in 2013, we didn't even know what GRES was. I mean, we, it, it was very formal. Certainly it was foreign to us. It was coming Literally. from the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> so we then said, oh my goodness, this is something that's important to our investors. We, we better figure this out. It just has evolved since there. We're at a point now where we have not only a fully dedicated impact team, there are a half a dozen of us in the Chicago or in the States area. We have someone in Canada and we have someone in Europe that this is for most of them, with the exception of the the individual in Canada, this is their full-time job. They're fully dedicated to this. So it really is becoming very much ingrained throughout our business. What I also think is interesting, again, relative to some of the current discourse, this came about because of investor demand. This came about as a business decision. You talk about how on the sales side, you're able to potentially charge more, see higher rental rates or longer tenure. These are all business impacts. I think it's interesting to note that in a capital market system, this is the ultimate capital market's reaction to things. (laughs) We started because of an investor question, but that's not where we're finishing. Yeah. What we do now is I think we flipped things. So in the beginning, we were looking to our investors to help direct us, or we were looking at this GRESP scorecard or or system to figure out what are the things that are important. I know that when I went into the role in 2018, I did not want to have them tell us what to do. I wanted us to define what is our brand, what do we want to stand for, what's most important. And I do think we've positioned ourselves in a very pioneering or a leadership role because we're now trying to do things that nobody is telling us we have to do this. We're not yeah. doing things just because we have to check the box. We're going in and saying, what are the things that truly are going to make a difference for our stakeholders? And how can we leverage ESG to make sure that that happens? And you're right. You mentioned, you know, Larry Fink and others are out there as, as you know, big proponents and talking about ESG. 
And I think we need to continue that conversation. Right now, there's, um, in the States at least, there is a backlash against ESG. Yeah. And, and, and part of it has to do with definitions and, and part of it has to do with politics. Putting on my physicist hat, I'm very, very fact-based. And I think we have to be very clear with what we're doing, be very transparent with that, how we're performing, and then how it's making a difference. It is certainly an active conversation, a, a backlash in certain places across the country. I'm curious if you could have an audience with some of the folks who are leading that. What would you tell them? How would you help explain to them your rationale for why this is important? Yeah, and I think you have to start with definition. So yep. equating ESG to social justice. That's not how I would define ESG, at least yeah. certainly not what we're doing around ESG. And if you were to talk about, you know, what we're doing or making the buildings more efficient and we're reducing expenses, we're reducing operating expenses, no one is going to argue with that. That's very, right. very fact-based. So I don't think that's where the issue is. I think, you know, ESG is very broad in terms of, of, of how it's called. If you get to a state like Texas or maybe West Virginia, where their concern is for their people, are these people going to lose their jobs? You know, are the oil riggers or the, the coal miners, are they going to be losing their jobs because we're transitioning away from this carbon economy? We are so far removed. From that. I don't think anything that I'm doing, if I put in a heat pump in a building, it's going to mean that 100 people have lost their jobs. I mean, sure. there's not that connection. When we talk to any of our investors in Texas, their concern is more like, we just want to make sure that what you're doing is truly providing an economic or financial value, which yep. we should be doing anyhow. I mean, that should Perfect. just be a yeah. given. So there's been kind of this knee-jerk reaction as to what does ESG mean? And I don't right. think it's been properly defined. Well, and I will say, I think the environmental piece is probably pretty defined, at least in the real estate space. Yeah. You know what's happening there. The social piece, not as much. We've actually asked our investors, do you think social initiatives are a benefit. And they will say, absolutely, we think it's great, but we have no idea how to measure it or how to define it. So we're working on things to create scorecards that you can actually measure the social in a very similar way that you measure the E in, in other scorecards. Yeah. I would love to hear more about the S and the G and how you guys think about them and how you action that. But I, just thinking back to what you already said, the student care program sounds like it would score well on the S of ESG potentially, and also comes with an economic benefit. As we see funds coming into the market around infrastructure, like there's social infrastructure components that I assume fall under the S of ESG that you could draw a direct line from to returns. So, you know, I think you're right. It's, it's all about the definitions and taking the time to be deliberate about how you define things and and how your investor's universe defines things and being transparent about it, right? Absolutely. And it's also how the E and the S and the G, how they all interact. Yeah. So you talked about social infrastructure. We do have a social infrastructure fund. And I would say a big focus of that fund, I mean, I mean, obviously on the infrastructure side, you're doing things like investing in wind farms and solar yeah. and, and hydro. But the other big focus of the fund, if you were to kind of think of it as 50-50, is working with universities and, and health systems to either build or renovate buildings or facilities on their campuses so that you're creating a better experience really for the students. And, and certainly we've been involved, as I mentioned, with student housing since, since our beginning, since 2005. But I would say now, probably in the last five years, we've seen so many universities start to make public pledges around decarbonization. They're coming out and saying, we want to be carbon neutral by maybe even as early as 2030 or 2035. And because they have these commitments, 
these universities are looking at, are there better ways that we can achieve sustainability with our on-campus district energy facilities, as sure. well as you know building new or renovating existing that they have on campus. And I would say well, one recent example um, that happened within our, our social infrastructure fund is we were awarded a project at a university, this is in North Carolina, they're building this new research building along with a residence hall and a new district energy facility because they want to make that portion of their campus to be 100% carbon neutral when, when all these buildings are ready. And the project itself is going to have geothermal, it's going to have wind, it's going to have solar renewable components, all of those types of things to make sure that that university goal is, is met. And we're in a position where it's really unique that we can actually help. So even though it's not necessarily our goal, it's the university's goal, and I think it's a, it's a beautiful story. One of the other components of S that I think Harrison Street has, has taken a, a strong and interesting position on is health to some extent and how the indoor environment, you know, the real estate, physical real estate can affect one's health. I know you've got some partnerships in the space, and I'm curious how that issue found its way into your personal and the company's portfolio and, and how you guys envision that aligning with everything. So... Certainly the asset classes we're in, as I mentioned before, student housing, senior housing, medical office, health is just a big component. So health and wellness, both the physical and the mental, have been a key part of our underlying strategy really since the beginning. And so about, goodness, probably about five years ago, we started looking at some of these healthy building certifications that were out there. And there were, really there were two main ones that existed well building certification and fit well. The issue we had at that time is they were really designed for office. It seems like a lot of these standards start with office. And a lot of the companies that put money behind developing some of these standards, they wanted to make sure that their buildings were healthy so that their workers were more productive, that they weren't getting yeah. sick, that they were sleeping better. Made perfect sense. Well, we're not in the office space. So if we wanted to do something in the senior living space, there wasn't even a scorecard. So we talked with both groups and with the well building standard, we are now a part of their well living lab alliance. So it's a collaboration between Delos, which is the organization that created the well certification and Mayo Clinic. And we're working with them on studies inside our senior living buildings to see how the indoor environment impacts their health. And then on the FitWell side, what the Fitwell organization did, and, and Fitwell is the product name, the company's name is actually the Center for Active Design. They worked with us and our operating partners to actually create a scorecard for senior. Why this was so important, if we were to use a standard scorecard, this is just one example, but in the standard scorecard, it'll ask you things like, are your stairs visible so that you're encouraging people to go up and down the stairs? Well, that's great if you're able-bodied. If you're in a wheelchair, there's only one direction you're going down. You know, it's down those stairs. Yeah. And then that's it. So we really had to change the scorecard. And we also had to change it in such a way because you have seniors and you also have staff. So we had to create a scorecard that, that worked for both. And so after those things happened, we committed to roll out FitWell certification across all of our buildings that have occupants in it. And we did it for a few different reasons. One, we just felt from a branding perspective, we wanted to be able to demonstrate that our buildings met a certain level of health and wellness. Um, we also thought that it would make the building more attractive to be able to market this building has been blessed by the CDC as healthy. And we started this before COVID. So we thought, oh my gosh, after COVID, this is yeah. going to you know, really take off. 
Um, and then thirdly, we wanted to get this data because we wanted to be able to yeah. demonstrate that buildings that scored higher truly did perform better. MIT had done a study on the more traditional asset classes where they were able to determine that like for like, if your building had a healthy building certification, you could charge between four to 7% more in rent per square foot as an example. Yeah. So that's a huge thing for us. So right now we have, gosh, about half of our applicable properties, like over 250 are either already certified or in the process of being certified. We have the largest number of Fitwell certified properties in the world. Where do we go from here? How do, how do we use data to continue to drive positive change? Well, I think you do have to rely on data. It allows you to make decisions. So if you see something's going south, you need to be able to know how to address that. If I tie it back to even our carbon emissions reduction goals, what it allows us is to identify what are those properties that are really the problem children. And we're going to address those first. The properties that are really performing pretty well, we know, okay, they're good. And so it allows us kind of in decision-making. Every quarter, we publish an impact dashboard. And we do it for the entire firm. And we do it by our funds. And in there, we call out what are all the material things that have happened from an E, an S, and a G perspective from that past quarter. And so that's, you know, that's how we continue to be transparent with what we're doing. Certainly, we have annual reports that we do. We do both a, a corporate impact report as well as, as well as a climate action plan. And the latter, what we address is what we're doing to ensure we're not contributing to climate change, which is the 70% carbon emissions reduction and how we're performing against that. What we're doing to make sure our buildings are resilient to whatever Mother Nature is going to throw at it. So all of the activities we do to to ensure that we've mitigated risk at our assets. And the third thing is the human element. So I could give you a building that's operating at net zero. It's resilient to anything Mother Nature is going to throw at it. But if I haven't thought about the human element, I have an empty shell. How do you guys define G and, and its importance? And talk just a little bit about that. So G stands for the governance. And I would even put in DEI in governance. There are a lot of people that put the DEI in, in the S. I actually, personally, I don't like it in the S uh, because I don't look at it as a social program. I look at it as how you're governing your, your business. How do you recruit? How do you develop your people? How do you give them opportunities? How do you decide what suppliers you want to work with or what partners you want to be involved with? And, and how important is diversity, equity, inclusion for you? You know, looking at pay equity, all of that. So for me, DEI fits under the G. There are other things that fit under the G too around like cybersecurity and and then your reporting. How are you reporting? How transparent are you? All of that information fits within the G. And so some people may say, well, G is just a given. But I really think that with a lot of these regulations that are coming out, we have the SFDR, which is the Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulations coming out of Europe. You have some new regulations that the SEC will be publishing in in April of 2023, Um, so yet to see on that. But there are a lot more reporting requirements, a lot more regulations. People want to make sure that if you're saying something around ESG that you're actually performing against it. So to me, the G is a huge piece. It's just as important as the other two, and I feel sometimes it gets kind of just put to the side because people just feel like, well, that's just business as usual. I really think it's changing. I mean, it, it, sure, it'd be wonderful if in, if in the world, business as usual was being honest and transparent. <laughs> I think we have way too many examples um, to the contrary, unfortunately, in, corp, you know, in, in 
Um, and, and those are the corporations that fail. Um, if there's ever a case to be made that ESG serves a valuable purpose to the bottom line, look at where there's governance failures because it equates to corporate failure. Absolutely. It's a three-legged stool for a reason. Yeah. Um, risk mitigation and resiliency and the other side of the equation around a fiscally smart reason to, to be engaged on this. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that particular angle. Yeah, absolutely. Because ESG isn't just about opportunity, it's also about risk. So at the very cost. bare minimum, yeah. yeah, the very bare minimum, you have to look at it at that. So any deal that we that have that comes in, we evaluate it for physical and transition risk. We use various tools to do this. And a lot of times the tools know nothing about the attributes of the building, but they know the location. So they could say like, okay, you're in Miami, you're at risk of a hurricane. Okay, well, we know that. But now let's look at the building design. Has it been built to withstand whatever level hurricane or whatever it is? And then if that's good, then we, you know, we mitigate it. We work with our insurance agent agency on all of that. And then other things like on transition risk, we have different municipalities that are now going to be coming out with uh, carbon taxes. And in some yeah. of the others, if you don't have your building designed right, you know, your insurance premiums are going to go up. So it's it's looking at all of that as well. I think if someone's skeptical about ESG that we talked about earlier, that's maybe where you need to start, is to say, if nothing else, this is helping alleviate risk. One of the stakeholders we haven't talked about much is government as a stakeholder, municipal, local, state, federal. And I'm curious how that engagement works from your perspective as a fund and, and as an, um, the chief impact officer thinking about and working with, in public-private partnership, some of those stakeholders. So... At the municipality level, like if there are certain things we're working on, we actually will partner with someone. I'll give you an example of solar. My team doesn't have the bandwidth nor really the wherewithal to be studying every single jurisdiction and knowing what incentive programs or what rebate programs are happening. So we make sure we partner with the people that do and they can come and say, hey, and, you know, it might be a, a state you wouldn't even think of. You know, everyone thinks of California with solar, but it could be some other state like I mean, Maryland. Texas I mean, is the number one renewable energy state in the country by a lot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I want to pivot and talk a little more theoretical, a little more inspirational. And the first is, is I think, a really awesome personal inspirational question for you. So okay. um, if I'm not mistaken, last year, Forbes wrote an article about you with the headline Icon, from physicist to impact officer at the $44 billion investment fund. Talk about the feeling and the legacy of being a role model in that way. Very humbling. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was very, very flattering to be named that and be a participant of that. I think, you know, from my standpoint, I think life is long and I think it gives us a lot of opportunities. And what I love about being in the ESG space is it's about collaboration. It's not about competition. Yeah. And the way that we're going to win is if we work together and we learn from one another. Simple example, I could make all my buildings net zero. But if nobody else does that, I haven't moved the needle. And I think it goes back to maybe me being a physicist too, and kind of asking why, you know, I come in, I'm not looking at these things with a real estate lens and I'll come in and be like, well, why are you doing that? And I'll be like, well, that's just the way we've always done it. Well, why? I haven't met any other chief sustainability or sustainability officer or impact officer or ESG officer that has the background that I have. Just thinking about it differently. I hope that that really helps where we're going with all of this as well. We really are bombarded 
on the regular with negative headlines, whether it's around the impact of the changing climate and how doom is inevitable, whether it's other things in the global economy or the global geopolitical world that we live in. And a lot of these are giant challenges. I think sometimes for any one person, change feels too hard or too insignificant to even undertake. And so I'm curious how you think about what I call defeating defeatism and how might you inspire others to to just try something? Yeah, well, I think, number one, it's about continuous improvement and not getting down and, you know, having that mindset that whatever I do won't move the needle at all. I think it's about setting examples. I think it's about inspiring other people. I think it is realizing you as an individual can't do it all, nor should you do it all. Right. But how do you collectively aggregate others, you know, collaborate with others to to move it forward? Where can folks read more or hear more or if they want to be following you or Harrison Street, what's the kind of best place for them to go? So a couple of different places. If they go to the Harrison Street, it's harrisonst.com website, there's a page dedicated specifically to impact. And then you could follow Harrison Street on LinkedIn and also myself, Jill Brosig on LinkedIn for more information. Big thanks to Jill for the conversation. Consensus in Conversation is hosted by me, Connor Gaughan. The episode is produced by Will Gatchell, Chandler Bramstead, and Jeff Rock. Executive produced by me with editing from Reasonable Volume. Special thanks to creative director Kate Tucker and strategist Patrick Gallagher. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll see you next week.